Let us begin in a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this opportunity to come once again into this place, to gather together as your children, to open your word, to learn and to speak your truth, and to have it affect us as we are being perfected in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us learn today about the work of conversion. This is a work that you carry out through us, Father, for this purpose, so that we would be driven to this place together, to gather as one body, to open your word, to study it, that we would learn to love and treasure it in our hearts, that we would learn more about your Son, Jesus Christ. Through that knowledge, we would grow to be more like him, and through all of these things, Father, that you and you alone would be glorified in the work that you've done. Yes, you be with us to this study, and please let it affect our hearts, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll begin with a quote from Robert Murray McShane, where he says, The conversion of a soul is by far the most remarkable event in the history of the world. Although many of you do not care about it, It is the object that attracts the eyes of the holy angels to the spot where it takes place. It is the object which the Father's eye rests upon with tenderness and delight. This work in the soul is what brings greater glory to the Father, Son, and Spirit than all the other works of God. It is far more wonderful than all the works of art. There is nothing that can equal it. Ah, brethren, if you think little of it, or laugh at it, how little have you the mind of God. And I use that quote so that hopefully you would understand how important the notion of conversion is. That although you think you might understand it, that you would hopefully through this study understand that it bears far more weight than you might have thought beforehand. So as we start to go through this study, I don't want to look at it superficially, I want to look at it as broadeningly as I can. So we're going to define it. Then we're going to look at those things which necessitate our needing to be converted. Then we'll look at the means that God uses to convert us, what he does to actually change us, and then the results of that change in that conversion within us. And then we'll briefly deal with thoughts on those that are not converted. What happens to those that are unconverted? So let us begin with defining it. Uh, I already see a problem here. I apologize, guys. Just give me one second. Oh, there we go. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So we're going to define it. First, we're just going to look at some biblical examples of conversion. First of all, just in sense of that it is, in fact, an identity that we have. I'm going to throw out a lot of Scripture today. I'll point you to certain ones that I want you to turn to, but for the most part, you can just notate them down or just pay attention. In Romans 16, verse 3, we read, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, for who, my, who for my life risked their own necks to whom not only do I give thanks, but also to the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epaphnus and my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. 
So he identifies this man as a convert, somebody who was not uh, a Christian and then began to become a Christian in Asia. Second, that it is a condition. This is actually something you might want to turn to in the book of Acts chapter 9. This is probably the most dramatic conversion that we have in the Bible, the conversion of Saul. If you don't know who Saul is, he's right on the front of your little handout. That's, that's Saul and his conversion. The apostle who was sent to deliver the gospel to the Romans. And I'm going to just jump through a few of the verses, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats, of, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And skipping to verse 3 to 6. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. And in verse 10, we read, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. He and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up, go to the street called called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And finally, in verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me that Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell on from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and rose up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. We see this remarkably dramatic conversion of a man who was persecuting the Christian church. He was rising up against them. He was threatening them. And then within the span of just one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, he was completely transformed after a small period of of trial. Third, defining conversion as a requirement, something that we must have within us. In Matthew chapter 18, we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So understanding these things, that it's an identity we have, that it's dramatic, and that it's something that we must attain, how do we define conversion? Well, Grudem defines it as conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. That's a pretty concise definition. I don't have another one. I think that's a pretty well-to-do description of what's happening. Something that transforms us where we are not in any way directed towards the Lord or his law or obedience or righteousness at all. And through his transformation of us, through the gospel that is preached to us, we respond where we wouldn't have before in faith. And through that faith comes obedience and repentance of sin. 
That's the other main biblical term is repentance. Metanoia in the Greek, it means to turn away. It means to change, to change, to turn your direction from one side to the other. Usually when I'm describing it to people when we evangelize, usually we're by a street, and I say, if you, if you have a child that's running out into the street, it's not good enough that they feel bad about what they're doing. That child needs to turn, and they need to come away from the street back to their parents. They need to obey your voice, or they're going to get stuck out in the street, and they're going to die. It doesn't matter how they feel about it. They need to change direction. That's what repentance is. Do I have any questions before I continue? Now, looking at the necessity of conversion. Why do we need to be converted? Well, we're going to be going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This all goes back to the very fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of in the Garden of Eden, which was where they fell, where Eve took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She gave to her husband who was with her. They both ate. And we see this as the very first sin committed. This was a deliberate act of rebellion a means to, for them to seek autonomy, to defy God's law, and to determine for themselves what was good and what was bad. In Genesis 3.6, we read, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from it its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate exactly what they were doing. They were determining for themselves that it was better to eat the food of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil than it was to obey God, determining for themselves that was good. Second, we have the nature of what we call federal headship, that through the fall of Adam and Eve, we are all born un, into sin through Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And then finally, as a result of this fall and our now birth into sin, we are conceived with a sinful nature which causes us to be stillborn, born dead in spirit. We are now in need of redemption. We have no means of salvation within ourselves. Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So Now that we know that we are born in sin, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are what we know, one of the doctrines of grace is that we are totally depraved. The total depravity of man, the T in tulip. Our birth into sin means that we are born in a state which wholly opposes God in every single thing that we say and do. Colossians 1, and although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So in this state, all of our actions, even our good actions, are sinful ones in nature and are unable to please God. Romans 8, for the mind set on the flesh of death, set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on flesh is hostile towards God, 
for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. We have no capacity for goodness within us. We are sinful from our very birth on. It does not have a point where it becomes more sinful. We are completely enveloped in sin. God said this right before he sent the flood, right after Noah had built the ark in Genesis 6. Then Yahweh saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the flood did not change anything, because he repeats those exact words in Genesis 8.21. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. So we know that through the fall, we are born into sin. We know that because we are born with a sin nature, we are totally depraved in every single way. And We also know that in order to be reconciled to God, there aren't many ways to do that. Jesus Christ made it clear that there is but one path reconcile us to the Father. And that is through Him. He is the narrow way. He said that it was narrow in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For The gate is narrow, and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. He said that He is the only way that, we, that He is talking about there. John 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And then some of the most important verses in the entire Bible from John chapter 3, when he's discussing these things with Nicodemus, he says in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is completely alien to us. We can't see it. We can't enter it. We're not even aware of it unless we are completely transformed and born anew. And this is a way that's only accomplished through Jesus Christ. And it's only accomplished through him by the Father's will. So that accomplishes why we need to be converted. There's no hope for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to see it, to respond to it, to enjoy its pleasantries, to be reconciled to God through it, any of that, unless we are converted. It must take place. Do I have any questions before I go to how God achieves that, his means? Any comments, questions? No? Okay. And let's continue. So the means by which God accomplishes this is threefold. And when I say threefold, I mean Trinitarian. 
God is solely at work in converting a human soul. God the Father is at work. God the Son is at work. And God the Spirit is at work in this. They all, take, they all have their place in conversion. First, through the grace of election. Right? Those who are called are first chosen by God. We see that in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Before he even created you, he determined that he would create you and that he would call you to repentance and that he would bless you in the heavenly places. Second, this is the you in TULIP, the unconditional election. That God does this, that he chooses us of his own free and sovereign will, despite any qualities that we possess, deeds that we could do, any efforts we might affect, none of it has any avail. It's all because of God's work. In Romans 9, for through the twins, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He loved Jacob, and he hated Esau, and he determined that love and that hatred before they were born, and before they had done anything good or bad. He had already determined how it was all going to work out, because he is sovereignly in control. He is absolutely powerful to accomplish all that his will would determine to be good. And by his grace, through Christ, and through the Spirit, the Father now adopts us as his very own children, as sons and daughters alike who share in the eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ. The very next verse in Ephesians 1, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So conversion does not take place unless God the Father has already elected you by his own sovereign will, has elected to call you out of, out of sin called everything according to his good purpose to make that happen within you so that you would be converted in Christ Jesus. It's all the work of God. Second, this is only accomplishable because of the work of Jesus Christ as well. If Jesus Christ does not come in the flesh, none of us can be reconciled to him. If Jesus Christ does not come in the flesh, our conversion means nothing because there's nothing to convert to. If Jesus Christ does not come in the flesh, then the kingdom of heaven doesn't really exist. and We're seeking something that, that, that's a false possibility. And his incarnation, his perfect life, his baptism, his Roman punishment, his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, these were all events that needed to take place in order to ensure that we could be reconciled to God. During his baptism, Matthew 3, he approaches John the Baptist, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you would come to me. 
But Jesus answered and said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Also in Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. These are things that must take place. Through that crucifixion, our sins were placed on Christ. We know that everything that Christ did was meant to accomplish redemption for us. But in the crucifixion of Christ, there were two very important things that happened. Something we call the great exchange. First of all, all of our sins, the sinful nature that we've committed, everything we did, everything we thought, everything we will do in the future is placed on Christ. Christ now appears through the crucifixion as a worthless sinner. Because he's taken upon himself all of our sins, not just mine. Mine would be enough. Your sins and your sins and your sins are all upon Christ through the crucifixion and the suffering that he committed. That curse of death and punishment that go along with sins. Without him taking upon these sins and paying that debt, we would still be cursed to eternal damnation. He must take the sins upon himself. In Galatians 3, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the other half of that great exchange is the perfect, beautiful perfection of Christ, which is pure holiness and righteousness, is now placed on us. Although we were once blind, although we were once sinners, although we are still sinners, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So when we approach the throne of grace, we do so not because we are good enough, not because we do have done anything worthy of anything at all, but because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's how we approach God. We are his holy adopted children, 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's like when a messenger would go to speak to a king from a foreign nation, usually had on a signet or some kind of robe that that said that he represented the king he was coming from. He was just a messenger. He was practically worth nothing. He, you know, he, he, he had probably very little food, very little money, very little wealth, very little status in the kingdom. But because he represented the king, he was greeted as a royal member when he would enter into the courts. He said, this man needs to be listened to because he brings a message from the king. And in that same way, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. God does not see us as worthless sinners. He sees us with the same love and beauty as he sees his very own son, Jesus Christ. So that's the son's work. It's God who elects us to this. God that calls us. God that affects us. Jesus that carries out the work of redemption so that we, are, we can be regenerated and be moved in the Spirit to respond to God. 
Now the Spirit comes as the third member of the Trinity, and he actually gets into the nitty-gritty, and he gets personal with each and every one of us through the act of redemption. Oh, I'm sorry, through regeneration, which we heard about last week through, through Anthony. And if you didn't hear that message, please download it. It was very wonderful. But that's what the Spirit does through the faithful preaching of the gospel message. It becomes confirmed in those who are elected by God through the Spirit's work of conviction of sin. John 16, we read, and he, when he comes, this is Jesus talking about the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And that response is the Spirit comes and convicts people of sin, affects two different people two different ways. You have sinners, unregenerate, who repress that knowledge, repress their conscience. In Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they suppress it. The Spirit tells them what you're doing is sin. The Spirit tells them what you're doing is evil. The Spirit tells them that what you're doing makes you an enemy of God, and they suppress it because they love their sin. To those that are converted, those that have been elected and redeemed by Jesus Christ, says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The spirit is at work regenerating our hearts. It's that work, it's the circumcising of our hearts. It's that transformation that happens in the heart, that regenerative work of the Spirit that transforms us from having dead hearts of stone to new living hearts of flesh. Just as it says in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, which says, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from Yahweh. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, though I have removed them from away from among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore says the Lord Yahweh, I will gather you from the peoples and the assemblies out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and will give you the land of Israel." When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart and give them a new spirit and will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The Spirit regenerates us. It awakens us so that we respond to this new adoption in Christ. It transforms our hearts so that we can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now it says that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. The Holy Spirit possesses us right now. As you sit here in these rooms, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 
The Spirit is always at work in us, not just keeping our hearts alive, but now allowing us to properly respond to God's truth. As we open the Word of God, Jesus said what? He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and I know them. When we hear the Bible, and we hear truth, when we hear gospel truth, the Holy Spirit testifies constantly that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Son of God. This is true. Put your faith in this book. Put your faith in this testimony. It is this faith that actually transforms you and makes you alive. Yes, Cindy? No, I, I can relate. You know, my, con, my conversion was also pretty confusing because I thought I was saved at the time. I had come to, well, I thought I had come to faith eight years prior to my actual conversion because I heard the gospel and it was a decision. It said, if you say this prayer, confess Jesus Christ as God, confess your sins before him and ask for forgiveness, God is honor bound to forgive you honor-bound to save you because of his glory, which in many ways makes a lot of sense. But when you put it before somebody, is that evil, as that easy conversion, just saying a prayer, this is an event, you're responsible for it, and once you do it, you're saved, and you don't have to worry about anything else after that. Do your best, but you're saved. Just because you said this prayer. Just because you made this decision wasn't until eight years later where I was actually confronted with what sin was doing to me. And I was confronted with, like, I saw, I, I won't go into the whole thing, but I saw my life as it was, and I saw the sin I was attached to, and I could see the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life never changing, being absolutely bound to sin. And it was like I thought I knew the gospel already, so I simply prayed to God. I said, listen, God, I don't know what's happening, but I just know I can't fix this. This is your work. You have to do this. If you don't fix me, I can't fix myself. And I asked for forgiveness in God's name, and that was when I was, you know, that's when things changed. I was like, wait, I feel different. Something's happened. And I just admitted I couldn't do anything on my own. So, uh, Bob, you go first, and then we'll get to you, Paul.
yeah and how that works out in their lives that it doesn't it's not just their decision that this is something that should absolutely transform them as people whatever they currently are to something completely different that actually seeks good things of god go ahead paul you had something to say Taking all, I trust him. Faith. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And that's, you know, whether or not you it was a dramatic conversion for you or whether or not it was something that took place over time, that's the place all of us that are calling ourselves Christians should, fall, should find ourselves in today. And that brings us right to our next section as far as the results of it, right? We see what necessitates conversion, why we need it. We've seen how God, not man, but each person of the Trinity is responsible for conversion in our lives. Now, as God transforms us, as he convicts us, as he circumcises the heart, and he transforms us, how does that look in our lives? What takes place in the heart and the life of an individual that has been converted from worldliness to Christ? The first thing is faith, just as Pastor Paul mentioned. Where we once responded to the gospel with hatred, in denial, we now with regenerate hearts respond with faith. It is this faith which is credited, us, credited to us as righteousness, as Paul tells us in Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, counted to him as righteousness. Belief, faith isn't righteousness. It's credited to us as righteousness. Faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. Second, one of the most popular verses for us Calvinists, or uh, well, we don't go to the verse, but that this faith is a free gift, right, as we see in Ephesians 2. But this is one which is bestowed on us. We do not earn it. We don't actively receive it. Not something where it's sitting right there in front of us and it's like we have to take faith out of the palm of God. God changes us. A dead heart of stone cannot have faith. A living heart of flesh cannot have anything but faith. It's completely transformed. Might have limits as to what, you know, the you know, little faith or much, but it will have faith. And it is, however, a faith that is typically experienced in the sense in which we feel driven to a choice, right? I know I felt that way. It took me a while to come around on Calvinism because, like, wait, no, I decided this. I felt like this was my choice. It, 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 it just felt like all. It just felt like so much like it was something that I decided to do, and yet at the same time, I was completely aware that it was God's work. John fifteen, verse sixteen: You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would, be, would abide, and that whatever you ask in the, of the Father in my name, that he might give to you. It's to 
God's work that transforms us. It is his gift of faith that makes us believers. The Bible tells us that we will be preserved in this faith. We'll be preserved in a faithful state, and we will not be allowed to permanently fall away from that faith. In John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So the first thing we gain as converts in Christ is faith. But is it faith alone? Doctrines of grace say that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, through the word of God alone. Right, So why would I say here that something that must take place is repentance? Well, because the Bible tells us over and over that this transformed life, if you truly do have faith, will come with it repentance. It must come with it. A faith that does not work is not faith. Only faith that acts out of faith is faith. We must repent. We must have. We must demonstrate. As Jesus just said, I called you that you might believe and bear fruit. He doesn't call us just to believe for belief's sake. He calls us to bear fruit. Through this new birth, we respond to the Spirit's conviction of our sin in our conscience. Our complete awareness of our own sin causes us to be ashamed And through that shame, we seek the forgiveness of God. Now, we live lives that are free from the bonds of sin, and we may freely pursue to live holy lives of obedience to God. Romans 6, we read, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. we are still corrupted by our sinful nature in the flesh and we still continue to commit acts of sin we seek to live lives of ongoing repentance constantly turning to the cross of Christ seeking forgiveness through his perfect work probably one of the most comforting verses of the Bible that I've odd one for most people when I tell them, is Romans 7, which says in verse 17, So now no longer am I the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, not, for the good that I want, I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. If the Apostle Paul is going through that, every single one of you is going through that. We're still wrestling with sin. We understand that this work of God, the transformation, the conversion of the soul, does not mean we are morally perfect. It means we are in a process that God is working out through us. And that is very encouraging to me. And that process is one that we call sanctification. 
we know, you know, to be sanctified means to be set apart. We are sanctified at the moment of regeneration. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 1 where it says, you know, where Paul writes, he says, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. But even though we have been set apart, we are not fully sanctified. We understand this as progressive sanctification because we continue to be sanctified through our lives. Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being, present tense, sanctified. This is a process that causes us to be all the more like Christ throughout our lives. It means that while you struggle with sin, your struggle with sin, the first day that you're a Christian, and the, first, the sin that you're struggling with, five years as to being a Christian, the sin that you're struggling with, 20 years into being a Christian, should be very different. You should actually have a growth, a spiritual growth, a maturity that takes place over time making you trust in Christ more and more and more, trusting in the will, work, and word of God more and more and more, and becoming like Christ more and more and more. From the first moment that you're converted till the day that you die and you are ultimately perfected. The Bible speaks about this in Revelation 19 where it says that we are being prepared for the marriage to the Lamb. 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Sort of like what Paul talks about when he says, work out your own salvation. He's not saying you're saying, saving yourself. He's saying that as a saved individual, you should bear fruit and you should by all means seek to bear fruit in your lives. Be more and more and more like Christ. Similar to sanctification, there is glorification. Because we are in Christ, we are glorified because we represent his, him as his adopted children. We're being made for, ready for our eternal state. We have been glorified on earth as we await the great day of the Lord, as it says in Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a guarantee. If he calls you, he's going to justify you. If he justifies you, you are glorified. But we know we aren't perfectly glorified. Glory, true glory comes at the end. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from our current glory. For it says from glory to glory, our current glory to our final glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We are being glorified and we are glorified. We are being sanctified and we are sanctified. God is at work in all of these things. We know that we will have these resurrected, final state, glorified bodies in the end that will not be subject to decay 
or sin. They will be perfected in Christ. And we know that all of this is for one very important purpose, that other sola, to the glory, sola deo gloria. It's all done ultimately to glorify God. Who's demonstrated mercy and grace and love towards us through all of these things. As it says in 1 Peter 4, as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength of God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. So This is what's happening. We believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. Through that faith comes repentance, a completely transformed heart. We are doing works that are bearing fruit in the world. It says in Ephesians 2.11, right? For we are his workmanship, carrying out works which he prepared beforehand. Through that work, we are being sanctified and glorified, being transformed more and more into Christ, ultimately being transformed into that final glorified state which we will find ourselves in the age to come. The last thing I'd like to talk about is what else happens when a soul is converted? We talked about what happens within us when the soul is converted. What happens outside of us when a soul is converted? Well, in Luke 15, verse 7, we read, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. On January 6, 2013, the heavens responded, rejoicing in the name of God over my salvation. over me. They weren't glorifying me. They weren't rejoicing simply because of me. They were rejoicing because of what God had done through me. The change that God had taken place in my life. And each moment when any, every one of you had been saved, the heavens opened up and the angels rejoiced for you as well. What had happened for what God had done. Yeah, and well, he actually says that at the end of that parable. In Luke 15, 1-7 is all about the parable of the lost sheep. And he says that, you know, and when he comes home and he gets together and calls his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then he responds, I tell you then, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So it is, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. Yes, Paul.
Absolutely. Amen. Um, but I'm starting to run out of time, so I'm going to speed this up just a little bit. We're almost done. Uh, also, the other thing that takes place is that now Christ, in his ongoing intercessional prayer, is always at work praying for us. As it says in Romans 8, 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Every time you sin, every time you fall short, Christ is always at the right hand of the Father saying, He is still our child. He is still covered by my righteousness. He is still your adopted son. He intercedes for us. I have any questions before I move on to false conversion? No? Okay. So, just a couple things I wanted to touch on very quickly. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13. And my throat's getting dry, so I'm going to ask Austin, brother, do you have Matthew eighteen open or Matthew thirteen open? Could you please read verses eighteen to twenty-three? This is the parable of the sower. Jesus admits, he tells us very much in this parable that, that some people, you know, there are those who hear the word and it falls on the, on the, on the, on the road, which is the hard ground. It can't take the, the seed at all. The birds come and they snatch it up away. These are just unbelievers, people that have been opposed to the gospel from every moment of their lives and they will continue to oppose the gospel for the rest of their lives. But then he talks about two others. He talks about the rocky ground, those who immediately seem to flourish in Christianity, but they will fall away as troubles and persecutions come in verses 5 and 6. And also the thorny ground in verse 7. Those who seem to be faithful in Christ, but slowly become drawn back into the world, being enticed by it. These are people that are receiving the gospel. They are responding to Christianity. They, they come into the, into the halls of the, the church, and they claim to be Christians. And they seem to bear fruit for a time. But we can't expect that everybody who claims Christianity is Christianity. So if we can't expect that everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, how do we know who a true Christian is? Yes, sister. 
Absolutely. So, and I would just add to that ongoing bearing of fruit, not just bearing of fruit for time. And we all have moments where we're going to stumble and have very little fruit to show for our lives. But ultimately, we should continue to bear fruit as we continue to grow, as we continue to remain faithful, as we continue to be preserved in the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It should be ongoing, right? It's, uh, what was I going to say? That we, uh, how did Matthew, uh, Martin Luther, he said that, you know, some people he calls Christians just based, it's just basically Christian charity that we call and consider certain people Christians. We do it based solely on their profession of faith. Somebody walks into this building and says they are a Christian, that they love the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no reason to doubt them yet until we see how life is bearing out for them, what kind of fruit they're providing in their life. But we don't simply say, ah, you have to prove that with your fruit. Initially, we could just say, well, welcome, brother. Here, take my hand. How are you? Nice. We, We... We engage with them, we are hospitable to them, we allow them to sit with us and to worship with us. Unless certain things happen where they start preaching heresy or start demonstrating that they don't know Christ or something like that, most of us are like that. You know, We can't say that any one of us, when we walked in this building, were demonstrating all the fruit of our lives as we walked in here. It's Christian charity. As people walk in, we simply accept it based on their sole profession of faith. For the Bible tells us that Nobody can profess Christ unless the Spirit is truly at work in them. They can say words, but they can't profess it. So we allow the Spirit to do its work, knowing that over time, those who are truly Christian will demonstrate themselves through the work of the Spirit and through the love that they demonstrate for one another, and that those who are not Christian will demonstrate that they have no fruit to bear whatsoever, whether it takes a little time or a lot. Running real short on time, works-based salvation. Nearly every other religion that we know of, including false Christianities, are works-based salvation. Religions which believe that a person can commit certain acts or achieve certain goals and somehow reconcile themselves of their own work, either partially or totally, to their creator, which we would deny. These are false religions. Those who practice them are deceiving themselves and are completely incapable of pleasing God. Isaiah says that even your good works are as filthy rags before God. So there is nothing that anybody could do that could ever reconcile them to reconcile themselves to him. Any attempt to legitimize a works-based salvation nullifies the gospel of Jesus Christ, makes it void, and it would be absolute heresy. Next, concerning Arminianism, which... uh, which Pastor Paul brought up earlier. As we said, regeneration comes through the heart, through the work of the Spirit, and we respond in repentance and faith. Those are things that must take place after regeneration. The Arminian does not believe that. They believe that God is is at work simply proclaiming gospel, that man is simply living his life and the gospel is trying to penetrate, but man resists it. And then there's a certain point where the gospel is heard, man of his own free will chooses to believe in God, and from that faith, God comes and then regenerates man and makes him alive. It's what we call decisional regeneration. Man is made alive because of his decision. Problem is that they insist that man is free.
free to accept or deny God at any time. As we said in the Gospel of John, it tells us that unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So you can't respond to it. Unless you're born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. You're not even aware of it. And because of that, they might also tell us, they will falsely accuse us of saying that because we proclaim faith and repentance, that we're proclaiming a works-based salvation ourselves. That because repentance must accompany faith, that we're saying works must accompany salvation. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that salvation takes place before faith or works even happen. Salvation is simply our response to God's work in our lives. He regenerates us. Now because of that, we have no hope but respond in faith. It is that faith that saves us, but is a gift that's given to God through regeneration. And because we are transformed, we commit works of good because we have repentant hearts that are transformed. They say repentance isn't part of it at all. You respond to the gospel, you accept God's offer of forgiveness. After that faith, then you are regenerated and there are no works to be had in any of it. Yes, sister. Everything is the work of God. Mm-hmm. Amen. Absolutely. Yes, Tammy. Amen. Yep. Repentance must also be there. Absolutely defines Christianity is repentance. So we're about to wrap up. Just two more minutes, guys. I just want to touch on this very, very briefly. Altar calls. Right? We don't do altar calls here, but many of you have been to churches where they do them, and it's important to note what they are. Uh, there are biblical texts that suggest that the gospel call goes out awaiting a man's response. There are also texts that insist that the gospel call is a command. And there are also texts that insist that the gospel call is a revelation command. It's not just a call awaiting a response. Many times altar calls are given saying, if you want to be saved, come up, make a decision for Christ. It's, 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 they're meant to draw men up. They're meant to encourage men and women to take a step forward to make that decision for Christ. But if you're making that call, expecting people to simply make a decision for Christ with no repentance, we would see that as unbiblical. We don't mean to characterize all altar calls as bad or sinful or unhelpful, but we have to understand they should not be a regular function of the preaching of the gospel message. The gospel message is to convict people of sin and to tell them there is one way, one path to reconcile themselves to God, which is through faith and repentance. Their heart has to do the work through the spirit of regenerating, transforming that person. If that happens, they're going to come forward no matter what you say. We don't expect people to come forward from an altar call. And with that, we come to a close. And I just want to 
reiterate, I want to say one more time that, that quote that I mentioned at the very beginning, because I wanted it to bear weight in the beginning, but I'm hoping now that we've gone through the study that you'll understand why it is so important. Robert Murray McShane said, the conversion of a soul is by far the most remarkable event in the history of the world. Although many of you do not care about it, it is the object that attracts the eyes of the holy angels to the spot where it takes place. It is the object which the Father's eye rests upon with tenderness and delight. This work in the soul is what brings greater joy to the Father, Son, and Spirit than all other works of God. It is far more wonderful than all the works of art. There is nothing that can equal it. Ah, brethren, if you think little of it or laugh at it, how little have you the mind of God? Let us close. Um, go ahead, Cindy. It's not, well, we, we don't want to say that altar calls are biblical or unbiblical. We simply want to say that to define the gospel message merely as a decision would be wrong, right? The Bible tells us to convince people. The mind should be at work in the, in the person. It's not just a heart issue. The mind is at work, too. They're thinking through the gospel message, but it is also a command. The Bible says the, the words, obey the gospel. Right? The gospel is a revelation as, the, as the, 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 the gospel is revealed to us right, through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. So something that's a revelation and a command can't simply be a decision. We can't simply say, you make the choice on whether or not you're going to believe this and respond to it. So for somebody to say certain altar calls where they say, if you have questions, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, come forward, talk to us, we're here to talk to you. That's not necessarily unbiblical. It's not necessarily a problem with that. We encourage people to talk to us and to get more information about the gospel. But to say, come forward and be saved, make a decision and be saved, that would be wrong. That's going too far. Last, last. I thank you guys for your time. We're going to close out in a word of prayer really briefly. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come once again. We thank you for this, this teaching. Please, Lord, let us, uh, let us be affected by it. Father, please let us truly be reminded of the transformation that you've worked in us through Jesus Christ and your Spirit. Please let us glorify you and give you thanks in everything because of this conversion, knowing that you have done this work and that you are continuing to carry out the results of this work in us. Please be glorified in our bodies and our hearts and our minds and our strength as we live to the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week.